turn your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Last week, Pastor Michael took us through the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 1 to 13. I wanted to start a time, I came across this painting this week, and I wanted to just show you this painting this, this morning as we begin our time together. There we go. Um, any takers on who painted this? It was not me. All right. Where's Lynn? Lynn's, Lynn knew this morning when she saw it. So, so you guys slept through art appreciation just like I did in college. This was uh, painted by Raphael. Raphael painted this, and if you'll notice, this is his painting called The Transfiguration. Uh, he actually didn't complete it. He almost got it completed before uh, he passed, but he, it's not quite completed, but enough that we see what he was getting across. And so what I want to show you uh, this morning in this painting. It's a beautiful painting, but you'll notice up top is, see, oh, look at this pointer here. Um, up top, you've got the transfiguration where you have, you have Christ, you have uh, Moses and Elijah, and then you have the three disciples below, right? The three di- disciples, uh, Peter, James, John, that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, what's going on below? The just a shot in the dark would be, what about the next passage, right? Uh, so the passage we're in today is they come down off the mountain. And so at the bottom of the mountain, while the transfiguration is happening, Raphael paints what's going on at the bottom that we're going to cover today. And at the bottom, if you'll notice over here, these are the other nine disciples. And you can see them, they're trying to do something, right? Over here is the crowd of people. And you have this man, and he's holding his boy who is in distress. And so the boy is crying out. He's afflicted and uh, has troubles, which we'll find in our text. And he's bringing the boy to the other nine disciples. The other nine disciples are trying to help him, but you can see their kind of distress that they cannot help him. It's not happening. And so you have two scenes in this painting that is a depiction of what's going on in Matthew 17, 1 to down to verse 20. What we see essentially is we see the glory that's happening on top of the mountain, and we see the, the bumbling and the, the failure on the bottom of the mountain in the valley. And so that's what we'll look at this morning. It's not really a, an uncommon picture of what we see even in the recent chapters in our study in Matthew. If you just think back and, and rewind, if you've been with us going through Matthew, if you just think back at some of the things that have happened, you'll remember in chapter 14, uh, Jesus comes and the disciples are in the boat. And what does Jesus do? He's walking on the water. Well, as he's walking on the water, what does Peter do? Peter says, if it's you, Lord, uh, bring me to you. Let me come to you. And he says, come on. And so Peter walks out and he's walking on the water. Well, then what happens? Peter begins to sink. He begins to doubt. And so while he ha- shows great faith, all of a sudden he shows little faith, right? And if we go on just to the next chapter, we have the, the disciples later in, in, in chapter 14, the end of it, they're making this great declaration that he is the son of God. They worship him, right? 
But as they worship him, right when you get into chapter 15, all of a sudden, this God they worship, all of a sudden they're concerned about, oh, well, um, you know you're offending the Pharisees. Did you know that? We we really have regard for the Pharisees too, right? And so it's kind of a a mountaintop and then back down in the valley again. Then you get to chapter 16. What do we have happening in chapter 16? We have Jesus asking, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And, and they talk about that, and then Peter speaks up for the disciples as a group, and he makes that great declaration of faith and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he makes that great declaration of faith with Jesus commends and says, well done. This is revealed to you by the Father. It's a, a great moment where you know, Peter's kind of puffing up his chest and going, that's right. And then they round the corner, essentially, in the chapter. And what happens? Jesus says something about his death and resurrection. And, and Peter says, oh, by no means, that'll never happen. And to which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking with the thoughts of man, not with the thoughts of God. Now we have the same thing happening. This moment of, of great triumph, this moment of great glory beheld as the Lord is transfigured on the, on the mount, only to come down and see the disciples struggling to help the people gathered. The disciples who were sent out in, in Matthew 10, remember they're sent out. What are they sent out with? The power to cast out demons, to heal the sick. Now they're at the bottom of the mountain and they can't seem to do what God had sent them out to do just a few chapters earlier. Great triumph followed by failures. It's common in the lives of the disciples. And I think if we're honest this morning, it's pretty common in our own lives. Kind of this up and down, up and down. Moments where we show great faith and then moments where we struggle to believe. It's difficulties of life. And so the question I want us to consider this morning is what can we glean from this instance that we'll read about? We see the disciples kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. What can we glean and learn from that this morning? Let's read the word of the Lord In Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14 this morning. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What we have here is we have a moment where, as we saw in the the painting from Raphael, where you have a, a great occurrence of the transfiguration on top of the mountain and the other disciples presumably down below trying to help the crowd interact and and bring healing and cast this demon out of this this young man and we have in verse 14 it says when they came 
to the crowd. They refers to Jesus and the other three disciples. They, they come down. They come down to the crowd, and the parallel passes to this in Mark, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 and 29. This actually has more details in it. Mark, a lot of times, it's a, it's a shorter gospel, only 16 chapters, and there's usually not as much detail. But here, Mark is much more detailed in this passage, in, what, in this uh, event, what happens. And so in Mark, we learn that when they come down, what they find is they find the crowd arguing. We find the, the disciples and scribes and the crowd, and they're, they're arguing. And they see, and they're astonished when they see Christ, and they look, and then the man comes to him. And the man comes, as we have here in Matthew and in Mark, he, he appeals for mercy. He appeals for mercy and healing, because when he did so with the disciples, help had not been brought to him. They couldn't help him. So he comes, and he appeals, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic, and he needs help. And the nine disciples could not help him. Verse 17, we, we see that, that he is grieved. The Lord is grieved over this. So faithless and twisted generation or, or perverted generation, it might be rendered. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's just the, the, the grief of the Lord as he sees what's before him. But we see the compassion of the Lord right after that in verse 17. Is what does he say? He doesn't just turn and walk away. But he looks, he, he says, bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. We see again a display of compassion, of empathy, of love, of care, of mercy from the Lord. Bring him here to me. He will intervene in the needs of the man and his boy. Verse 18, we see Jesus displaying his power over the demonic. What does Jesus do? The boy comes and says, Jesus rebuked the demon. And what happens? The demon doesn't argue. The demon doesn't debate. The demon doesn't go, well, later on. It says that the demon came out immediately. He, he comes out. It says that came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. Instantly he's healed. We see accounts similar to this. If you just think back or want some cross-references, in Matthew 8, 28 to 34, you had, had Jesus healing the two men um, of, the, of the demons at, um, at Gerasene. And then in Matthew 9, 32 to 34, you had the account where, where Jesus healed the mute man who came and he, and he cast out a demon from the mute man. He was able to speak and hear. And what we have, as I reminded you there and, and we talked about there, I'll just remind you again, what we see in, throughout the gospel is there are times when physical ailments have completely natural causes and Christ just brings healing upon somebody with a physical ailment. But there are times such as this where there's a physical ailment that has a spiritual cause and spiritual root to it. We know that all ailments, all suffering, ultimately is rooted in sin and sin's consequences from the fall. But not all of it has the presence of demonic activity per se. But here it does. Here the boy who has epilepsy has, is a result of demonic activity in his life. And so Christ rebukes the demon. So after this, you can imagine, the disciples have been trying to do this. They've been trying to cast the demon out. They had done it before. And now they were trying it again. It didn't happen. Christ comes and Christ rebukes him. And instantly the boy's healed. And so the disciples come to him privately, right? And say, hey, what's the deal? Like, what's wrong with us? Why couldn't we do it? Why, why were you able and, and we weren't? Jesus follows that with an important contrast in verse 20. We'll talk about it in a moment. He contrasts 
their little faith with mustard seed faith. Isn't that interesting? He contrasts little faith with mustard seed faith. Now, I would guess that most of your versions in there, most of your versions in there, if you look at your text, it probably ends there. Now look at verse 21. You see it? It may not be there. Why is that? Right? Why is that? Well, in your text, probably goes from verse 20 to verse 22, and then you have a footnote. You should have a footnote down at the bottom that explains. Mine says some manuscripts insert verse 21, saying, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the reason that is, the reason that's noted, I just want to take just a minute to comment on this. The reason that's noted in your scripture is because in earlier manuscripts and some of the most reliable manuscripts, that statement is not found. And so we have thousands, I think it's 50, close to 5,700 copies of the New Testament in Greek, manuscript copies of the New Testament in Greek. And so when scholars look and they look at all these manuscripts, and they see that the reliable ones, if there's discrepancy, that's how they know the, the accuracy, the veracity of Scripture, the integrity of Scripture, right? Because you have so many copies of it, right? And so you can cross-track and look. And when they look and they see, well, that's not in the most reliable ones, then they leave it out and they footnote, this is what it says, okay? The, so the question is, does this cause concern then for us on the integrity of Scripture? So we look and go, wow, we can't trust Scripture because of this. Well, absolutely not. And here's why. One, I, I would say this, is that where would this come from? Well, Mark 9.29 says this. Mark 9.29, Mark writes, and this is in every manuscript, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay? And so scholars see that and go, okay, some, at some point a scribe has put this in for Mark to clarify what was going on. But because it wasn't in the earliest ones, the translators and the scholars are going to say, listen, you need to know this. So that should not harm the integrity of Scripture. Instead, we look and we see the vast number of Greek manuscripts, and we look and we see how it's all compiled, and we see that the translators are faithful to the integrity of Scripture. They look at it and say, we want to make sure it's right, and there's nothing to hide. We're going to explain this with footnotes so you can see it. Okay? And so if anything, it boosts our confidence in the integrity of Scripture. There, there's no doctrinal question here. There's nothing that would make us go, well, is there some kind of doctrinal error? Does this change our understanding of the text, the context, the meaning, the theology? No. No. It's just scholars looking at the Greek manuscripts and understanding this is an ancient text and we want to be as faithful as we can to relay the actual Greek into our English translations. So this, if anything, heightens the trustworthiness of Scripture for us as we look to the Word of God. So we ask the question then, what are we to make of this passage? That was a question I asked in my office this week. When I read, actually I asked it in a deer stand. I wasn't seeing any deer last week on my hunt in Missouri, and so I pulled out my phone like a good deer hunter and read the passage for this week so I could be thinking about something. And I read it and went, oh, what are we going to do with that one? right? A genuine, honest question of a preacher. Where are we going? What does this passage have for us? Why does God have this passage in his holy word, and why is it important for Grace Baptists to gather together and to consider this passage? Well, I would say that the contrast that Jesus makes in verse 20 is very important for us. 
he makes this contrast that when you read it, it's kind of surprising. He contrasts because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, then you can do great things, right? There's a contrast there we need to consider. Now, before we do that, I want, I want to just explain to you, somebody clarify something as we talk about faith this morning. There's, there's kind of two dimensions or two aspects of faith, two angles of faith we can look at. And we, we kind of hinted at that and started there in the pastoral prayer when I read from Galatians 2. Right? They were, were justified by faith. They're saving faith. We look upon the finished work of Christ and trust him for salvation. That is saving faith. We look on the finished work of Christ for salvation. But we also see in Scripture the continuation of faith, the, the walking by faith, the living out of our faith. And so that's why I made the comment in Galatians 2, and we looked at it, Paul makes that statement, that theological statement, that we're justified by faith alone, right? But then he makes that statement just a few sentences later saying, I no longer, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by what? By faith, right? We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith that we might live by faith, right? The living out of our faith, the walking of, by faith through life. And so what we understand is it is, then imp- it is then possible for a believer to look back on the finished work of Christ, right? The finished work of Christ and to trust in his work but struggle in the living out of that faith in life. We say, that, we say that even in the apostles. If you think about, they had all turned from their way of life. They'd all turned and, and left their way of life to follow Christ in faith, right? But we see in that life of faith as they follow them, we see these ups and downs, right? We see these struggles. We see times where they show great faith. We see times where they struggle in faith. I appreciated. The, the words of Charles Spurgeon in, in thinking about what does it mean to walk by faith this week, uh, this weekend. I was just reading one of his sermons on that. Where he's talking about uh, passing in 2 Corinthians 5. And what does it mean? He kind of elaborates. What does it mean to walk by faith? And the, the, that idea that the scriptures say we walk by faith. What does that look like? What does that mean? And he, he points out three things. He says, first, walking requires inward life. Something that is not alive does not walk. It may sit there, it may be in the corner resting, it may be propped up against the wall, but it doesn't walk. But something that is alive walks. And so, so we have been made alive in Christ, so we walk by faith in Christ. Okay, so walking requires inward life. It requires that we're alive. The second thing he points out is that walking signifies activity. It signifies activity, he says. It, it signifies that we live out our faith. We, we practice our faith. I want to just read to you an illustration he, he, he said that I think is very relevant for our sermon this morning. He says, we walk, and this implies activity. Oh, I would that some Christians would pay a little attention to their legs instead of paying it all to their heads. When children's heads grow too fast, it's a sign of disease. And they get the rickets and water on the brain. So there are some very sound brethren who seem to me to have gotten some kind of disease. And when they try to walk, they straightaway make a tumble of it because they have paid too much attention to the perplexing doctrinal views instead of looking as they ought to have done to the practical part of Christianity. By all means, let us have doctrine. But by all means, let us have precept too. 
what Spurgeon is expressing there is, is that if we're going to walk, if we're called to walk by faith, it means we live it out. There's activity, right? We're practicing what we believe. And Spurgeon's just calling us to say, listen, don't get so caught up in what you know and, and growing theologically and intellectually and not living out what you believe. We should indeed stand for sound doctrine. If you're, if you're familiar with Spurgeon, you know that, that he stood firm on sound doctrine. He, doesn't, he didn't budge on that. But in the midst of that, Spurgeon's saying we can't just stand there. We're called to walk by faith, right? Doxology leads to practice, right? Duology. Number three, he says walking implies perseverance. Implies perseverance, we're not called to just run the whole time by faith, right? We might run for a little while, but then we wear out. Walking is that picture of, of diligence and perseverance that you just continue on and on and on and on. You just keep going. You don't turn aside. You don't stop. You keep walking and walking and walking. It is a picture of perseverance. And so the disciples had responded to Jesus' call. They'd responded in faith, and, and they were obedient to that call. And now they're living by faith and exercising that faith in different situations in life. There are times where they failed. There are times where they struggled in that. And so that's what we want to look at. Little faith versus mustard seed faith. And I want to ask kind of in the back of our head as we talk about this, am I living in such a way that I am characterized by walking by faith? Okay, that's the question let's keep in the back of our head this morning. Am I living in such a way that somebody would say he is walking by faith? So let's look at this contrast. Little faith versus mustard seed faith. So the first thing we see this contrast, we look at it and we, we need to really recognize that Jesus isn't concerned as much here with the size of their faith. He's not, he's not concerned so much as is it, how big is it? How, how weighty is it, right? Well, how do we know this? Well, the, the contrast. He, what is he contrasting there? He says, it's because of your little faith. For truly, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, so right, he's saying, this is the reason that you couldn't do it. But if you had had this type of faith. Now, if he's, if he's comparing the size, that wouldn't really make sense, would it? As you understand, when you hear faith of a mustard seed, what do you think immediately? You think the smallest little bit it could be, Right? It's a proverbial statement of just saying something of the smallest amount. Just, if you just have the smallest of faith, then God will do great works in you. But he just said little faith. So is he saying, well, your little faith is small faith, and we, you know, I mean, it's like this race to see what can be the smallest? That just doesn't really make sense, does it? There's something else at play here. There's something else that, that we need to understand in this contrast. L little faith Maybe it's too generous of a translation that we hear and we immediately think little faith means the size of the faith. If, if you're here and some of you may be reading from the King James Version this morning, the King James Version actually translates it as unbelief, not little faith. They translate it as unbelief. And I would say that King James probably gets closer on this one to being accurate than our modern translations do. Whereas unbelief. It helps us see that there's a contrast between unbelief and faith. The little faith is one that is lacking in belief and the mustard seed faith that is genuine, real faith in the risen Savior. 
So what we would say, we look at here is verse 20, this contrast when he says little faith versus mustard seed faith is probably better to understand a contrast between poor faith and genuine faith. Poor faith that is poor in quality rather than small in size. Okay? There, there's one even um, in the, the literal wooden Greek translation talks about your impoverished faith is how it describes it. Your impoverished faith is little faith. So is this justified, right? That's a question we need to ask. Or, are we just trying to fit this in? Is it justified? Well, let's, let's think about it for a minute. There's four different places where this same word is used in Matthew, where Jesus describes little faith. And every time he uses that, he's describing the disciples. Okay? He's talking to the disciples. He's saying and describing little faith towards the disciples. And every time, it is moments of failed faith in the lives of the disciples. The first time is in Matthew 6.30. Matthew 6.30, he's, he's teaching the people not to worry. He's calling his disciples, saying, listen, don't worry about tomorrow, right? And what he says there, he says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Trust the Lord. Don't worry. Oh, you of little faith. That's the first time. In Matthew 8, verse 26, you'll remember this instance. The storm. The disciples are on the sea. Storm arises. The disciples are fearful, and Jesus calms the storm, right? He calms the storm. Well, what does he say? He looks at them. He says to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Why is fear characterizing you? Oh, you of little faith. In Matthew 14, 31, this is the, the third usage of it. Matthew 14, 31, we have the instance where Jesus is walking on water, right? We talked about that a little earlier. Jesus walks on water. And then Peter steps out and he starts walking on water to him, right? And then what happens? G or Peter looks around. When he looks around, he starts doubting, and he starts sinking, and he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord extends his hand and, and grabs him and saves him. In that instance, it says Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Little faith, characterized by fear, by anxiety, by doubting. And then in Matthew 16, 8, a passage we were in just a few weeks ago. You remember Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and then he feeds the 4,000. So he's, the disciples saw this. They were watching, right? They, they see it. They go across the lake, and, and then all of a sudden they're concerned about having enough bread. They just saw this. But yet all of a sudden they're going, oh, we don't have any bread. We don't have anything to eat. Jesus, aware of this, says to them, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Oh, you of little faith. Little faith. When we look at contextually the uses, all five uses here in Matthew. We look at it. Little faith refers to and describes a faith that is insufficient, that is lacking, that is poor in quality. Perhaps it is even best described as a lack of belief. Little faith is characterized by anxiety rather than trust in chapter 6. It's characterized by 
fear rather than faith in chapter 8. It's characterized by, by doubting rather than confidence in chapter 14. And it's characterized by fretting rather than reliance in chapter 16. Each of these situations called for a supernatural work of God in the disciples' life. And in each situation, when it was depending on a supernatural work of God, the disciples' faith is lacking its poor in quality. This passage before us today is the same. The supernatural power of God is needed to bring healing to the boy's life. But the disciples' faith is little, it's poor. It's lacking. Perhaps it's unbelief. We don't know. He doesn't exactly spell it out black and white for us. We just have to look contextually in this passage and contextually in the Gospel of Matthew how that word is used. So the question then for us, we look at this is, are we walking through life? Are we leaving this church this morning? Are we navigating the trials of life? Are we living life as a family and saying we're, we're people of faith, yet we're not walking by faith? Are we living in such a way as Jesus would look and say, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Is our, is our life more characterized by anxiety, fear, doubting, and fretting than it is by trust, faith, confidence, and reliance on God. See, living by faith meets all of those things. It meets the doubts. It meets the frets. It meets the anxiety. It meets the fear. And instead of being racked by them, it deliberately looks to the Lord and puts trust in Him. That's the life by faith. It's not that we never meet a moment of doubt. It's not that we never meet a moment of fear. It's not that we never have anxieties or concerns. It's just that when we meet them, we look unto the Lord. We look unto Him, the one who finished the work on Calvary for our salvation. We look unto Him, we trust Him, and we rely upon Him. See, the calling of Christ is more than to just having this little faith that's characterized by doubting and fretting, anxiety, fear. It's a calling to instead have mustard seed faith. Faith as a mustard seed. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like? It looks like daily trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you. Daily looking back on Him. Daily looking back on Him. His work and what He's done to save you. It looks like the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as the writer of Hebrews says. It looks like knowing that you don't have the answers, but trusting that God does. It looks like this unreserved, unquestioning, undoubting confidence in Christ. That whatever the day holds, whatever the, the challenge is, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to accomplish it. As a matter of fact, I just can't. But I am confident that Christ can. This unwavering confidence in Christ. It looks like being ever mindful of who God is. That He is the sovereign Lord of lords. That when things come upon us and things enter into our lives that we don't think we can handle, we remember and we look to God as the sovereign ruler and King of kings and Lord of lords and we trust Him. 
It looks like ever remembering the mighty works of God in the past that we might pray for God's mighty work in the future and trust him today in the present. It's living by faith because we know who we serve. It looks like trusting God's plan even when it does not make sense or it's different than you anticipated. This is not the way I envisioned it, Lord, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust you. This, everything in my life looks different right now. It's not the way I laid it out, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. It looks like submitting to God's wisdom above your own. When you think this is what should, it should look like, this is the timing of something, but God's word says, no, this is what it is. And everything in my life, my feelings, my everything may, may be going, no, 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 and you're fighting against it, but you look and you go, this is the word of the Lord. I will submit to the word of the Lord because I trust God's good design for me and good plans for me, his goodness. He is good. We talked about several weeks ago. He is good and he does good. He is abundant in goodness. And so faith is trusting that when we come and we see his wisdom and we submit to his wisdom that it is good even when we don't understand. It looks like obeying without questioning. When God says to do this, we do it. We obey. It looks like asking without doubting. We bow before the Lord and we we pray, God, would you please do this? It's asking, petitioning the Lord with a single-minded confidence on Him without doubting His ability and His wisdom and His goodness to answer that prayer. It looks like believing God will do what is best in His wisdom and goodness in that. It looks like coming and praying and trusting that he can and that he will do what is best. And what is best may look a little different than what you think is best because God has wisdom that is beyond our wisdom. It looks like trusting God then with whatever answer he gives. Perhaps that answer is a no. Perhaps that answer is something radically different than you ever imagined. And it's you saying I submit to you, Lord, and trust you. I'm walking by faith in you. It's stepping forward to follow Christ's leading in your life when you can't see the next step. It's stepping one step at a time in life to follow the Lord, even though you don't have everything ahead figured out. It's confidence in His control over the future as we faithfully live in the present. That is what it looks like to walk by faith. And I want to just emphasize what I just said. That is what it looks like. It is visible. We can see faith lived out. We see evidence of it, right? We can see it lived out. Just consider Hebrews 11. You can, if you want to flip over to Hebrews 11, Hebrews is further on in the New Testament. It's probably just a little bit from the end of your Bible. If you're not familiar. But Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you may be aware and, and know this, this passage. Hebrews 11, many call it the hall of faith. And it's the chapter in which the writer just goes on and by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it's a, a picture of those who live by faith. Well, in chapter 10, he's, he's just written about the full assurance of faith that we have in Christ. This full assurance, he calls it the full assurance that we have in Christ. 
Then in verse 38 of chapter 10, he explains, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, that, that my righteous one shall live by faith. All right? So there's faith in the finished work of Christ, and the righteous live by faith. We live eternally. We have life because of faith, but we continue in life because of faith. And so what we see in Hebrews 11 is that a confidence in Christ results in a life lived for Christ. So that confidence in Christ's finished work and trusting him, being saved, issues forth in us living out for Christ. We are fruit-bearing Christians. We follow him. The call from Christ is what? Come and follow me. It's not come and stand there and look pretty. It's come and follow me, right? So we live for Christ, and we see that in Hebrews 11. We see these Examples, examples, examples of, of these wonderful saints of old that uh, did great things for the Lord. But you know what we also are going to see in here is that these saints did very normal things, kind of mundane things. There was just kind of this faith being lived out in just normal, mundane things of life. And so we see both that living by faith sometimes is just living and exercising faith and trusting God in the daily routine. That you would live by faith as you parent. That you would live by faith in your marriage. That you would live by faith as, in the way you work and the way you carry yourself and the way you plan for the future. Just these simple, ordinary, mundane things. But then, as you live by faith in those things, when this great moment comes upon you, right, that you're practiced and you are continually living by faith, in that moment, what do you do? You appeal to the Lord and you continue to live by faith. And that is that big moment that sometimes these guys have in Hebrews 11. So we, we see both. We need to balance them. So walking by faith. We see, here's three things we see. Must receive faith in Hebrews 11. One, we're going to see that must receive faith is trusting God to do what is beyond our means. We see that in here in Hebrews 11, that they trusted God to do what was beyond their means. We also are going to see them simply trusting God's word. What God said, they simply just trusted him. They had faith in him and what he said. And then sometimes it's as simple as just obeying, just walking in obedience to the Lord. So if you just kind of scroll through Hebrews 11, we don't have time to read and just talk about every one of them, but if you just go this afternoon and read through and consider these, you can go back into the Old Testament and look, but Abel showed faith through right worship and sacrifice. It was simply through right worship and sacrifice. That's all Abel did, and it's by faith he did this. Noah showed faith by building an ark. When it seemed absolutely foolish to everybody around him, he endeavors to do this great feat in the strength of the Lord, right? And he shows great faith in doing that when everybody around him thinks it's, uh, it's just crazy. You think about Abraham. Abraham, he showed faith through simple obedience initially to God's call. So what do you, when you read in, in, um, in Genesis 12, when you read there, it says that, that God called him to leave. And so Abraham went, right? Just simple obedience, he was living by faith, right? It was the exercise of faith and trust and just obeying the Lord that Abram's commended for. Sarah, on the other hand, showed faith by trusting God to be faithful to his promise. The things he spoke, she, she trusted him, even though the, the Hebrew, uh, where it describes Abraham, if I'm not mistaken, you have to double check me later, but basically says he was pretty much as good as dead. I mean, he was so old, not having a kid, right? And she trusted the Lord. So they had Isaac. Abraham, again, is commended for his faith. And why? Because then is this great mountaintop experience when, 
when he says, listen, I'm going to give you a son and, and I will bless the nations through him. And he has Isaac. And then God says, okay, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac. And so we have Abraham in this great moment of faith, trusting God to do what only God can do and saying, listen, I'm trusting your word. I'm trusting your promise. I'm going to trust you in this situation to do something that I don't know what's possible. All I know is we're going up. We're going to worship and offer sacrifice. And it's significant in Genesis 15. He says, we are coming down. Right? Abraham's showing faith. Showing faith. Isaac shows faith by blessing Jacob and Esau as God led. Even though he knew what was going on, he wasn't completely ignorant of the craziness and the deceit and the scheming and who his kids were. We know who our kids are, don't we, parents? It's not like I'm like, oh, I don't know the personality of my kids. Can't believe they would have done that. No, we know. Right? Yeah. Isaac. I mean, Jacob knew. Jacob showed faith by blessing his sons, right? He blesses them. And he blesses them when? After he knows what happened. He knows what they did. These rotten scoundrels, you did what? All right, now I'm going to bless all of you. He trusts the Lord. He trusts God's plan. He's showing faith in God. Moses shows faith by giving up the privileges of Pharaoh's house to follow the call of God. You all should come to the Wednesday night J.C. Ryle class this week. In God's providence, you know what J.C. Ryle's chapter is this week for our class? Moses, an example of faith. Right? So look at that. But Moses shows faith by giving up the privileges of Pharaoh's house. Just gives them up and follows the Lord. That's his exercise of faith. But then he shows great faith to stand before Pharaoh, the, the greatest king in the land in that time. He stands before him and he trusts the Lord to do mighty works. Right? He shows, he exercises faith. The people, or their faith is exemplary in Hebrews 11. Why? Because they go across the Red Sea. Do you think they had ever seen a moment where a sea is split? Is that something we see? I've never seen Lake Cumberland do that. They come and they, they see it gathered apart. A, a, a I say, can you gather something apart? How does that work? That doesn't work. You separate it. You can't gather it apart. But you, it's separated. And they, they see and they're looking. And now what do they do? Their simple faith is they go, okay, we're trusting the Lord. It's not going to crush us. So they walk across. Well, it crushed the Egyptians. Their faith is that they trusted God to keep the waters back. What about Rahab? Rahab is commended in here. She has faith. Why? Because she trusts the Lord and helps the army of God at risk of her own life. Time and time again, by faith, by faith, by faith, the saints of old, Showing simple, mundane, mustard seed faith in God. They're confident in Him. Now, I think we need to take note also, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. I've also heard it called the hall of failures. Which of these saints are perfect? None of them are. Which of the disciples were perfect? None of them were. I mean, we pick on Peter all the time because he's an easy subject, right? Because we have so many examples of him up and down, up and down, up and down, right? Great moments of great strong faith, but moments of struggling. We see that. We see that even as we look at these. We know that Abraham lied. We know that Moses had this outburst of anger. We know that David was a murderer and an adulterer. We see those things. 
We see that Solomon, we didn't talk about Solomon, but we see that Solomon completely disobeyed and took on all these wives that the Lord told him not to do. But yet, the Scriptures commend them for their faith. In the midst of the failures, they are commended by their faith for their faith. God doesn't cast them aside. He uses them. In the midst of the failures, we remember their great faith. God did great things through them and in their lives. And we see that in the disciples as well. The disciples, in the midst of their failures, in the midst of their struggles, we see in the disciples' lives. And we remember in the midst of Peter's up and downs, ups and downs, what's the last conversation that Jesus has with him? Feed my sheep. Peter, you've been all over. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't cast him aside. He continues to work and use him in his life. That's where the rubber meets the road for us. Because I think the reality is that most of us in here would say, if not all of us, I would say all of us, would say, I have utterly failed at points. There have been times that I absolutely know that the Lord would look at me and say, oh, you of little faith. We, if we're honest, we're there. Maybe, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're in that spot where you say, I have little, poor, insufficient faith that really is probably more characterized by unbelief. I, and really, this whole life of faith, walking by faith, is really faith in what I can do more than what it is in what God can do. The things I'm praying for, if I really just decided to stop praying and walk outside and do it, I could do it. I'm just really asking God to do what I don't want to do. I'm just too lazy to do. We may be there. Maybe you wouldn't say, I'm just completely leaning on the saving grace and the power of the Lord Jesus. I'm not looking back on that. Here's what we need to remember. Is that hope is found in the finished work of Christ. Hope is found in the one in which we believe. Hope's not found in the measure of our faith. There's times where we cling and struggle in faith. You know the, the parallel passage in Mark 9 has a statement by the man who brings his boy. He brings the boy and he set, looks at Jesus and he says, if, if you're able, would you heal him? And you know what Jesus says? That's great. He looks at the Son of God who's existed for all eternity, for whom, by whom, and through him all things exist, right? <laughs> and he looks at him and says, hey, if you're able, could you heal my son? And so what does Jesus reply? I mean, you can just guess. <laughs> if I'm able? <laughs> okay. If I'm able, with God, all things are possible. Do you happen to remember or know, anybody in here know what the man's response is? He looks and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that profound? The man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, hope is found that we rely on the strength of Christ to do what we cannot do. So some of you are sitting here and whatever it is, it may be some situation, some trial of life you're going through and you say, I can't do this. I can't do it. 
I can't do it. It leaves me here, it leaves me there, it leaves me anywhere but before the cross exalting the name of Christ. It leaves me anywhere but walking in grace. It leaves me anywhere but walking in joy and peace. I can't do it. That's right. You're absolutely right. Oh, you have little faith. You're trusting self, saying, I can't do it. The hope of the gospel, the hope of Scripture, is that we're called not to trust ourselves. We're called to trust Christ. First for salvation, that we look back and go, I can't save myself. I can't do it. You're right, you can't. Good, glad you realize that. But Christ can, and Christ did what you cannot do. And so we look back on the finished work of Christ, and we trust Him. We repent of our sins, and we trust Him in faith. Because it's by faith alone that we're justified. It's faith alone by which we are saved. So we trust him and his work. We don't trust him plus this. We don't trust this in addition to what I can do or say or who I am. We simply trust him and trust that his work on the cross, his death on the cross is sufficient to save me. And we know that and it's a surety to us because we know that he's no longer dead. He rose from the grave and he lives and he reigns victoriously. And so we trust him. And we live trusting him. We live looking to him. I can't do it, Lord. I'm trusting you. See, what this passage shows us is that the disciples did not need giant faith. They simply needed genuine faith. That's what it shows us. We simply need genuine faith because it's not faith in of itself that works and saves It is faith in Christ that works and saves. And so we look to Him, and if we look to Him even with mustard seed faith, even with mustard seed faith, mighty things are accomplished, the first of which is a wretch like me is saved, and a wretch like you is saved. And then we walk by faith. And see God do great and mighty things. So the question, are you living by faith? Am I living by faith? Friend, are you daily depending on the finished work of Christ on the cross? Are you just daily depending on Him for salvation? That's the first question, are you? If not, I would urge you, I'd appeal to you to trust Christ, to turn to Him in faith today. It's trusting Him to do what you cannot do. Would you trust Christ? Or perhaps the question is this, is are you Christian, are you faithfully walking in obedience to God's will and word? Will someone list you among the saints of Hebrews 11 and say, by faith, She is simply obeying the word of the Lord in this moment in life where it seems so difficult to do. She's walking in faith. Or perhaps the question is this. What are you doing or in what ways are you living that can only be explained by confidence and trust in God to do what you cannot do? 
Is there anything in my life, is there anything in your life that you're praying for, that you're stepping out in faith to pursue for God's glory that can only be explained if God does something great? Or have we so figured out how to plan and manipulate everything in our lives that by faith really just means by my plans and what I'm doing? Are we living by faith? Are we living by faith? We're going to close today with that song. We're going to close by singing and responding with the song, By Faith. Our worship team comes back to the stage this is what we're going to say. I want you to hear these lyrics as we close today. We respond in song. By faith, we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design. That's the beginning of Hebrews 11. By faith, we believe that God created all things. That's where Hebrews 11 begins. By faith, we see God's hand in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. By faith, our fathers roam the earth with the power of His promise in their hearts, of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. Do you, do you walk in that way? Do you walk with the power of God's promise in your heart? His promise that He has saved you, He will save you, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God? In Christ Jesus our Lord, do you walk in the power of that promise that he will never leave or forsake you? Do we walk in the power of that promise? Do we walk in the power of the promise that we await a better city? A city that is greater, a city on the hill, a city called Zion, a new Jerusalem, and we await that better city that God has prepared for us, that Christ said, I have gone to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back for you. Are we walking so, so, so set upon that, that that the things of the world we just refuse and cast aside and we don't get tripped up by the, by the stuff of the world, the nerve of the world, but we just pursue Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in the better city and the promise of that better city that awaits. Is that us? Are we walking by faith? We're saved by faith. Let us live by faith. Let's pray.